This is Who Wore What When, a podcast where we examine the lives of historical figures and what clothing they wore in the most significant moments of their lives. I'm your host, Maggie Latham, and today I thought we might do something a little bit different. Um, Instead of history of clothing, we're going to talk a little bit, and by we I mean me because isolation and quarantine is so much fun. Um, We're going to talk about the history of cleanliness and hygiene. Um, David Henderson, this episode is for you. Um, Yeah, so let's get started. This one might be a little bit more dull since I don't get to have one of my uh, lovely co-hosts today, but I'm hoping I can be entertaining nonetheless. But we'll see. So a little bit of basic information on the history of hygiene. Since the Industrial Revolution and the discovery of germ theory, hygiene and sanitation have been at the forefront of the battle against illness and disease. This is pretty common knowledge, but you know, I feel like it's important to state anyway. You may actually be surprised that many ancient cultures were actually really clean. Um, They had bathing rituals for hygienic, therapeutic, and even social purposes. We're just going to hear a lot of noise of all the people who are not isolating themselves in their apartment. Because some people aren't very smart. The word hygiene comes from hygeia or hygieia, depending on different sources, who was the Greek goddess of health and the daughter of Aesculapius, the god of medicine. Historically, people did not have scientific evidence for the medical importance of hygiene as we do now, but cleanliness was often still associated with power, spirituality, and even beauty. Bathing was also not a private ritual, but rather shared with others as a way to build a community and connect with people. And I'm sure we would all give a lot to be doing that right now. Man, this microphone picks up everything. That's me touching my shirt. can't even hear that normally. All right, that's crazy. Okay, now let's go back to the beginning. Starting in 3000 BCE, people bathed in seas and rivers because it was considered the purest form of a bath. Waterfalls became showers, and public baths became the main form of bathing simply for convenience. Um, One of the earliest baths was the Great Bath of Mohenjo-Daro, which was located in Sindh, Pakistan, and dates all the way back to the Indus Valley civilization. This bath had two stairwells leading to it and was 40 feet wide by 22 feet long. Now let's jump ahead to 1500 BCE, where ancient Egyptians placed high importance on bathing, washing, and cosmetics. We know about the cosmetics because we've all seen the images of the pharaohs with their eyeliner and everything like that, but They actually believed that the cleaner and more well-oiled you were, the closer you were to the gods. And hygiene, makeup, and clothing were super essential to them when burying the dead because it would help with the judgment of the dead, which was the way into the afterlife. Ancient Egyptians would use a scented paste of ash and clay as soap. The Ebers Papyrus, which was a source for medical knowledge at the time, told people to mix animal and vegetable oils with alkaline salts for washing and treating skin diseases. People washed themselves several times a day before and after meals by rinsing their hands, feet, and faces in water basins and using the paste mentioned before of the ash and clay. Both men and women also plucked and shaved their hair as a beauty trend, 
and rich people might bathe in private rooms where servants would pour jugs of cold water on them, which honestly sounds super unpleasant. <laughs> At the same time, ancient Israelites also took an interest in hygiene, and Moses gave detailed laws governing personal hygiene. They related cleanliness to health and religious purification. It was also suggested that Israelites found that mixing ashes and oil created a type of hair gel. How are all of these things so loud and yet so quiet most of the time? In 500 BCE, the Greeks were the first to pioneer the modern shower in their gymnasiums, but they did not use soap. Rather, they used blocks of clay, sand, pumice, and ashes. Then they would anoint themselves with oil and scrape off the mixture with a curved blade called a strigil. Men trained in sports and played games and then had to bathe after, so gyms provided athletes with showers and indoor plumbing. Men would exercise to work up a sweat and then scrape off the perspiration with the aforementioned strigil, and then would get into a tepid bath, followed by a hot bath, and then a quick plunge into a cold bath. Also, fun fact, the ancient Greek term hymnos, which is part of the word gymnasium, means naked, so athletes competed in the nude as a way to appreciate the male form. Could you imagine if the modern Olympics still had them competing naked? That would be wild. In 300 BC, Romans became much more focused on the idea of public baths and ended up using lead-lined water pipes and tanks, which is not a great idea, um, as we would know today, but they didn't know any better at the time. The city of Bath in modern-day England, which was known in Roman times as Aquae Sulis, was notorious for being a city of bathing because of its incredible public baths with hydrothermal springs and sophisticated water systems. Bathhouses ended up being the center of a town because they were hubs for exercise, relaxation, and socializing, and they were usually the first thing to be built in a new city. They contained a series of rooms with different temperatures ranging from cold to hot, and even had special areas to eat and drink wine, change clothes, get massages, exercise, and even places to go to the restroom. They were heated through hippocausts, hollow spaces under the floor through which hot air traveled from furnaces, and water came from pipes, drains, and sewers. According to Historic England, private bathhouses in towns were rare and usually the preserve of the rich. The majority of the populace used public bathhouses, which consisted of a series of rooms of graded temperatures with associated plunge baths. Bathhouses provided medical treatment and haircuts because barbers back then would pull teeth and even perform minor surgeries. Yikes. Romans also believed in the ability of urine to remove stains. Until the medieval period, people used lye, which was made of ashes and urine, to clean clothes. Now jumping ahead to 476 current era. This was when the Roman Empire fell, and after that, aqueducts and indoor plumbing fell into disuse and disrepair, and a new era of uncleanliness was ushered in throughout Europe. Although in Britain, people worked to keep their teeth clean by rinsing their mouths with water or a mixture of vinegar and mint. Some used bay leaves soaked in orange flower water and rubbed their teeth with a clean cloth. So, they may not have been showering, but at least they sort of brushed their teeth. Cons of quarantine, I'd never drink enough water. Now, in 700 CE in the Western world, some public bathhouses still existed. The Catholic Church disapproved of these bathhouses because they were still the centers of socialization and relaxation. 
People would have dinner parties and baths by placing a plank over the top of the bath as a makeshift table for food, and they would have a musician entertaining them. Now, some public bathhouses gained a reputation for being similar to brothels where people could engage in sexual acts, which is often how we see bathhouses today, and that's our modern association with them. A scholar and scribe of Charlemagne described the king's bath parties as follows. He would invite not only his sons to bathe with him, but his nobles and friends as well, and occasionally even a crowd of attendants and bodyguards, so that sometimes a hundred men or more would be in the water together. That sounds like quite a bath. Now, around the same time in Asia, bathing culture can be traced back to Buddhist temples in India where priests bathed for religious reasons. This spread to China and then Japan during the Nara period and was practiced mainly by Buddhist priests. They called baths yuya, which means hot water shop, and they began to expand when people started using water as a form of healing. Now, bathing as a religious ritual had existed for thousands of years, mainly among Jews, Muslims, and Buddhists, to remove bodily and spiritual impurities, long before the germ theory of disease by thousands of years. Holiness was associated with cleaning, but scientists aren't really sure why. And around this time in Britain, a pamphlet suggested people keep their teeth white by rubbing their teeth with powdered fish bones and rinsing with a mixture of vinegar and sulfuric acid. Yummy, yummy. Doesn't sound quite as minty fresh. God, there are so many people out and about right now. Speaking of people being out and about when they're not supposed to be, in 1340, current era, the bubonic plague changed how Europeans viewed bathhouses killing 50% of the European population. There was no scientific or medical understanding of germs, so people believed that open pores could allow illness to get into their bodies and dirt all over their skin and oil and all that gunk would block the disease from getting in. At the same time, the church was painting bathhouses as dens of sin where people would mingle in the nude and have sex, which, you know, again, back to the whole brothel thing. And because of the bubonic plague, as we are experiencing now, um, people are being deterred from bathing in communal places or even existing in communal places because, you know, disease and how it spreads, you know, through human contact. Stay inside. And the levels of bathing at this time depended on the level of wealth, status, and personal preferences. So the Benedictine monks of Westminster Abbey bathed only four times a year, which the times were Easter, the end of June, the end of September, and Christmas. And what's most alarming to me is that gap between Christmas and Easter, because that's like, that's a long time. Other people bathed more frequently, especially kings and the wealthy. Despite the plague, many Eastern countries and specific religions, like I mentioned before, the Jews, the Muslims, and the Buddhists, maintain their traditional standards for hygiene and cleanliness. In 1566, King James VI of Scotland wore the same clothes for months on end and sometimes even slept in them. He also wore the same hat for 24 hours a day until it fell apart completely. And he didn't bathe because he thought it was bad for his health. He's wrong. In 1586, Sir John Harrington invented a valve that, when pulled, would release water from a toilet, but there were no sewers or running water at the time, so it couldn't be practically used. 
In the year 1600, Brits began rubbing their teeth with the ashes of rosemary and powdered sage, which was used as a whitening agent, and wine mixed with vinegar was used as mouthwash. At least they have the alcohol in there. Don't, doesn't most mouthwash have alcohol in it? I don't know. In the 1700s, the idea that water could be used for therapeutic purposes, called hydrotherapy, became very popular, and books were written on the, quote, cold water cure. Lord Chesterfield wrote to his son to encourage the use of a sponge and warm water to scrub his teeth every morning, and Fouchard, a French dentist, recommended the use of one's own urine, as well as gunpowder and alum to clean your teeth. I double-dog dare anyone to try that. Sounds like a whole lot of bad stuff to put in your mouth. In 1767, the first modern mechanical shower was invented by William Feedham in England, which involved a pump that pushed water into a vessel that hung above a person's head, and a person could pull a chain to release water from the vessel. In 1829, the first modern public baths opened in Liverpool as there was a renewed interest in cleaner versions of bathhouses. In 1847, the notion that bathing and hygiene could serve medical purposes finally arrived and led to better health. Doctors didn't wash their hands before surgery until Ignaz Semmelweis's finding on germs when he discovered that women giving birth were getting sick after being assisted by medical students who were assisting with childbirth after performing autopsies. Ah. He instituted a strict hand-washing policy and deaths dropped 20-fold within months. Fancy that. Touching dead people and then touching women's lady parts. That's just horrendous. In 1851, the modern toilet is invented. Glory, hallelujah. Thank you for that. In 1858, hot weather hit London, drying up the River Thames, leaving sewage and waste exposed and causing the Great Stink, which forced Parliament to close and initiated a reform of sewage systems and cesspits. In 1861, the concept that diseases could be prevented by sanitation and good hygiene began to take hold. The U.S. Sanitary Commission was created to help wounded soldiers during the Civil War and pioneered a new era of sanitation after finding that by just washing patients, their clothes, and the walls of their rooms, a doctor could save more people from disease. This is where Americans most likely began their obsession with cleanliness, daily washing, perfumes, and shampoos. Now flash forward to the 1900s. A typical Saturday night involved American family members getting loads of water into the kitchen, heating it, and filling a large basin with it. The father would bathe first, followed by the mother, and ending with the youngest child. Saturday night bathing was a way to prepare for Sunday's day of rest. And in 1920, Lysol is sold as a genital disinfectant and birth control, despite it being a caustic poison and it caused burns and itches, but women applied it to their skin for 30 years. Hey ladies, don't use Lysol on your vagina. Just don't. That's a really bad idea. Just put it out there. Yeah, that's all I have to say. And today, the average American showers daily, either after waking up or right before going to bed. And showering and bathing is now a private affair. It's clear that bathing has health benefits beyond just removing dirt and germs from the skin. Baths have been shown to reduce stress, improve cold symptoms, relax muscles, and even help with sleep. 
And uh, that's the basic history of hygiene. This episode just simply would not be complete without discussing one of the most relevant hygienic items during the COVID-19 outbreak, toilet paper. Again, David, this is for you. So, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what ancient cultures, and some modern cultures, used as toilet paper. Get ready to be disturbed, folks. We'll start off easy. Romans used wool and rose water, or a sponge attached to a wooden stick soaked in a bucket of salt water. Not too bad. The Greeks used clay. A lot of coastal regions used mussel or clam shells, and sometimes occasionally a coconut husk. Most Europeans used their hands. Islamic cultures used their left hands with a little water, which is why it is offensive to greet someone with your left hand, so just take note of that. Eskimos used moss or snow. The Vikings used wool. Colonial Americans used the core center of cobs from shelled ears of corn. As uh, Governor Mike Huckabee suggested we all do on Twitter. Thank you, sir. Um, no, but thank you. The Mayans also used corn cobs. The French actually invented the bidet, but they did so without modern plumbing, so it was a lot more difficult. In the 1400s, the Chinese finally invented toilet paper, but I couldn't possibly do this episode without talking about one of the weirdest things people used. Here we go. In the early 16th century, French monk Francois Rabelais released his famous comic Gargantua and Pantagruel, which was a satire on Renaissance learning and European culture at the time. It was a tale of two giants and their misadventures in a grotesque version of Europe, which gave advice on everything from managing debt to seeing the future. And the chapter of this that concerns us right now is chapter 13, in which the characters take the time to discuss the best method of wiping oneself without toilet paper. This list included old hats, attorney's bags, a spare slipper, and finally, the feathers of a goose, specifically the feathers of a goose's neck, and for best results, they should be attached to the goose. The quote from the book is, But to conclude, I say and maintain that of all torquicools, arse wisps, bum fodders, tail napkins, bunghole cleansers, and wipe breeches, there is none in the world comparable to the neck of a goose that is well downed if you hold her head betwixt your legs, and believe me therein upon mine honor, for you will thereby feel in your knockhole a most wonderful pleasure, both in regard of the softness of the said down and of the temperate heat of the goose, which is easily communicated to the bum gut and to the rest of the innards, in so far as to come even to the regions of the heart and brains. Yeah, so there you go. If you run out of toilet paper, find a goose and hold its head betwixt your legs. So in conclusion, wash your hands and stay inside, folks. I don't have anything else to say. Thanks so much for listening to Who, or What, When. 
This episode of Who or What When was researched and written by me, Maggie Latham. It was edited by Maggie Latham and produced by Dabney Rao. We were inspired by David Henderson's History of Clothing course at Hofstra University. This episode was sponsored by social distancing, quarantine, and of course, COVID-19. Some of the research from this episode came from knowledgenuts.com and medicaldaily.com. Did you know that making a podcast costs money? It sure does, especially when its creator is unemployed. But there is a way you can help by going to patreon.com and searching who or what when or clicking the link in the description. You can help us break even. For $1 per month, you can get access to some of our research materials, and for $5 per month, you get access to bonus episodes. Additionally, for a one-time donation of $50, I'll make you a custom embroidery. Stop honking! Special thanks to David Henderson, who gets a shout out every week, but this week is particularly special because truly, without David, this episode would not exist. Um, so you're welcome, David. Um, and to everyone who voted on my Instagram poll that they would listen to this podcast. Hope you're still listening. I know it's been a while. Did you enjoy this episode? Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five stars only, please, and tell your friends to listen, tell your enemies to listen, but do all of this over the phone. Don't see them in person. Social distancing. Visit our website at whowarewhatwhenpod.com and check us out on Instagram at whowarewhatwhenpod. Do you have questions, comments, or concerns? Email us at whowarewhatwhenquestions at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Happy quarantine, everybody. Hope it's fun. I have a feeling this episode is not going to age well when I'm out of this quarantine and I'm going to look back and it's going to be like, I'm going crazy by myself. So, we'll see. <laughs>